Varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren James Elroy i samtal med Britt-Marie Mattsson, Göteborgsposten. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är litteratur- och bibliotekschef i detta stora allkonsthus vid Sägelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. America! I window-peeped four years of our history. It was one long mobile stakeout and kick the door in shakedown. I had a license to steal and a ticket to ride. I followed people. I bugged and tapped and caught big events in ellipsis. I remained unknown. My surveillance links the then to the now in a never-before-revealed manner. I was there. My reportage is buttressed by credible hearsay and insider tattle. Massive paper trails provide verification. This book derives from stolen public files and usurped private journals. It is the sum of personal adventure and 40 years of scholarship. I am a literary executor and an agent provocateur. I did what I did and saw what I saw and learned my way through to the rest of the story. Scripture, pure veracity, and scandal rag content. That conjunction gives it its sizzle. You carry the seed of belief within you already. You recall the time this narrative captures and sense conspiracy. I am here to tell you that it is all true and not at all what you think. You will read with some reluctance and capitulate in the end. The following pages will force you to succumb. I am going to tell you everything. <laughs> Chapter 2, Don Crutchfield, Los Angeles, 6, 15, 68. Women! Two bevies walked by the lot. The first group looked like shop girls. They wore Ivy League threads and modified bouffants. The second group was pure hippie. They wore patched up jeans, peacenik shit, and long straight hair that swirled. They came and went. The wheelmen waved. The shop girls waved back. The hippie chicks flipped off the wheelmen. The wheelman, Wolf called. The Shell Station lot, Beverly and Hayworth. Four pumps and a service bay office. 
three wheelmen sprawled in their sleds. Bobby Gallard had a Rocket Olds. Phil Irwin had a 409 Chevy. Crutch had a 65 GTO. He was the rookie wheelman. He had the boss ride, 390, Hurst four-speed, coon maroon paint. Bobby and Phil were midday blitzed on high-test vodka. Crutch was residual torqued on the girl show. He scanned the street for more walk-bys. Zilch! Just some old hebes loping to shul. Back to the paper. Yawn! More jive on James Earl Ray and Sirhan Sirhan. Snore! America grieves, accused assassin's lair. Ray vibed pencil neck. Sirhan vibed towel head. Hey, America, I got your grief swinging. Crutch flipped pages. He hit flyweights at the forum and a grabber. Life magazine offers one million scoots for Howard Hughes picks. A redhead walked by. Crutch waved at her. She scowled like he was a dog turd. Wheelmen emitted bad vibes. They were low rent and indigenously fucked up. They perched in the lot. They waited for work from skank private eyes and divorce lawyers. They tailed cheating spouses, kicked in doors, and took photos of the fools bawling. It was a high risk, high yucks job with female skin potential. Crutch was new to it. He wanted to groove the job forever. The paper called Howard Hughes a billionaire recluse. Crutch got a brainstorm. He could starve himself down to bones and shimmy up a heat shaft. Snap, one Polaroid, and vamoose. The lot dozed. Bobby Gallard skimmed beaver mags and slurped Smirnoff 100. Phil Irwin wiped his 409 with a chamois cloth. The lot dozed, no work, no walk by coups, gas station ennui. It was hot, it was humid. Crutch yawned and aimed the AC vent at his balls. It perked him up and got him head tripping. Gas station blahs adieu. He was 23. He got expelled from Hollywood High for candid camera stunts in the girls' gym. His old man lived in a Goodwill box outside Santa Anita. Crutch Sr. panhandled, bet all day, and ate pastrami burritos exclusive. Crutch's mom vanished on 6-18-55.
crutch was 10 then. She up and split and never returned. She sent him a Christmas card and a five spot every year, different postmarks, no return address. He built his own missing persons file. It filled up four big boxes. He killed time with it. He called around the country and ran PD checks, hospital checks, obit checks. He kicked off his quest in fucking junior high school. Nothing. Margaret Woodard Crutchfield was still stone gone. The wheelman gig fell on his head. It happened like this. He kept up with his high school pal, Buzz Duber. Buzz shared his passion for pad prowls, soft prowls like this. Hancock Park, big dark houses, preppy girls' lairs. Knock, knock, nobody's home. Good. You enter undetectably, you carry a pen light, you dig some plush cribs. You walk through girls' bedrooms and exit with lingerie sets. He did it a few times with Buzz. He did it a lot by himself. Buzz's dad was Clyde Duber. Clyde was a big-time P.I. He did divorce jobs and got celebs out of his shit. He installed college kids in left-wing groups and got them to rat out subversion. The fuzz popped crutch on a panty prowl. They snagged him with some black lace undies and a sandwich he glommed from Sally Compton's fridge. Clyde bailed him out and got his record expunged. Clyde got him wheelman and chump surveillance gigs. Clyde said window peeping was kosher, but next be an E. Clyde said, kid, I will pay you to peep. Crutch had a flop at the Vivian Apartments. It was a walk-up dive just south of Paramount. Grips and stagehands lived there. Bit players turned lunchtime tricks in a jumbo mop closet. Crutch crammed all his shit into two rooms. His file shit, his camera shit, his car shit, his bug and tap shit. Clyde taught him surveillance. He had phone cords and wire mounts up the yin-yang. He had the full run of Playboy magazine. He had car craft back to 52. His wallpaper was 41 Playboy Playmates. He settled in for the night. He updated his notes on his mother's last known location. Christmas 67, 
Margaret Woodard Crutchfield writes from Des Moines. Every known records check, zero. Backtrack to 66, a Christmas card from Dubuque. Every in-between town, full records checks, zero. Crutch got antsy. Buzz was who knows where, blitzed on who knows what. Buzz had this mean streak that he lacked. Buzz carried a fake cop's badge and coerced head out of hookers. Nix that. Holding it in was better. It was warm out. A summer storm brewed. Crutch took a drive. He circled up the Hollywood Boulevard and out to the Strip. He looked at people. The long-haired girls jazzed him, and the long-haired guys rubbed him wrong. He trawled for that 62 bird and Scotty's blowjob bandits. He saw two fags in a 61 bird and no more. He drove east to Hancock Park. He cut his lights and perched at 2nd and Plymouth. That big Spanish house held him. Window glow flickered upstairs and down. He saw Chrissy in USC sweats, one glimpse and gone. He saw Dana tie her hair back in the kitchen. Buzz didn't get it. Nobody got it. That's why he never told anyone. It wasn't Chrissy Lund. It was always Dana Lund. And she was 53 years old. Well, it's even more interesting to listen to you than to read you. So I wish that you could read your whole book, but it took you 15 years to actually write three books. How could you actually, were you ever afraid that you wouldn't have the strength to do the third one? Here's what happened. I wrote the first book in a year and a half, second book in two years. Then I had a nervous breakdown. My second wife divorced me. I floated around the country. I fell in love with a woman named Joan, who's Joan in this book. She dumped my ass. I do what I always do when women dump my ass, move back to LA. And I met a married woman with two daughters named Karen, who turned out to be Karen in this book. And she dumped my ass. And I figured I could turn it all to shit or write a great novel. <laughs> and now you have a crash on a Swedish woman that you have met, never met. This story will haunt me the rest of my life. <laughs> Let me say that it was a long time ago. Let me say that I am devotedly in love with a woman named Erica in Los Angeles. But are you dying for me to tell the story? Absolutely. Do. All right.
Okay. <laughs> All right. It was 1989. I was 41. I was about to start writing my novel, White Jazz. The lead character was a woman named Glenda Bledsoe. She was a murderous car hop in 1958 L.A. in love with a handsome, predatory, corrupt L.A. cop. And I had no face for her. And I was walking my beloved bull terrier, Barco, down Greenwich Avenue in Swank, Greenwich, Connecticut. Barco was a hell of a dog. We'll see him on the other side. <laughs> and I looked in the window of a record store, and there was a Deutsche Grammophon cutout on an easel of the Swedish mezzo-soprano and Sophie von Otter. And I said to myself, holy fucking shit. <laughs> And I walked into the store, and I walked up to the clerk, and I said, I want to buy that poster. And he said, fuck you, it's not for sale. <laughs> and I said, I'll give you a thousand bucks. And he said, sold. <laughs> you could have said 10. <laughs> I'd have bought it. Yeah. Yeah. 10,000, sure. So Barco and I walked to the bank. I got a thousand out in 20s. I grabbed the poster of Aunt Sophie von Otter. I propped it up on my desk, which did not please my current wife very much. And I wrote the novel, White Jazz. And I've mentioned this to a few interviewers, and now it's coming back to haunt me in the great mezzo-soprano's hometown. And doesn't her husband run this place? I think so. The fucker's going to lynch my ass. <laughs> but is she in your head now, you know, writing a new novel? I have a memoir coming out next year called The Hilliker Curse. Hilliker was my mother's maiden name. It's about women and me. And I go into my fixation with Ms. Von Otter in great and very proper and decorous detail. <laughs> and Erica Schickel, the woman I'm in love with in L.A., has already read the manuscript and approves. Great. So I'm covered morally <laughs> because no lover that you met in 07 should rag your ass for a crush and a fixation you had in 89, right? Absolutely not, and especially it's a poster, so that's... that's it's a poster, yeah. yeah. But she's well, in I town. bought a few CDs. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and she's in town as yeah. well today. Is she in town, yeah. I think so. Yeah. But yeah. now we're talking about this Is she book. in the audience? <laughs> <laughs> well, now we're talking about this one. Yeah, my book. Ruber. So, uh, you are actually... It's in between 68 and 72. Right. And it starts... Uh, at the time when Dr. Martin Luther King was killed, and then yes. Robert yes. Kennedy is killed. Right. And there are, these are considered to be the lonely killers. You know, James Earl Ray, it was not a conspiracy, they say. Right. And Robert Kennedy, what not a conspiracy, they say. Right. But Robert Kennedy happened to be behind the coffin of Dr. King. So, is there a conspiracy? Is it some kind of linkage between the two? Beats the hell out of me. <laughs> there is conspiracy. 
there are treatises on the collusive mindset when like-minded men get together, have similar or overlapping agendas, and decide that somebody must die. Now, the best explanation that I've ever heard for the John F. Kennedy snuff, I got from Don DeLillo's novel, Libra. And it's hardly original to Mr. DeLillo. Renegade CIA men, not the CIA as an entity, crazy right-wing Cuban exiles, and the mob. It's as close to being verified as great rumors can be. Sirhan Sirhan and Bobby Kennedy, dicey. I called it a conspiracy. What's real, what's not in my books? That's the one question I can never answer. James Earl Ray and Dr. King, even the most seasoned FBI agents, have wondered how a stupid dipshit like that managed to escape from prison and stay on the loose with his pockets full of cash for 13 months. And James Earl Ray was actually arrested in London. Yes. So how come? Why didn't you take him immediately? Dr. King was killed at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis in right. the corner balcony yeah. there. Right. And it, it seems like an easy piece of cake, you know, to take this assassin. Disarray, his rifle was conveniently left in front of a gun shop, the Canipe gun shop, with his fingerprints on it. Wouldn't you think you'd wipe your fingerprints off before you shot an eminent figure? I certainly would. Mm. I would try, yeah. I think. Yeah. Mm. Ms. Von Otter's husband would do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> And then we have Robert Kennedy being killed just at the, when he's about to be nominated as a Democratic presidential candidate. He was candidate. not going to be nominated. No, but he, was, he had won the primary, the California primary. He had won the California primary. And McCarthy hadn't, resigned, hadn't dropped at the time, but still, It was you know. Hubert Humphreys. He was going to be nominated. But Bobby Kennedy was 42 years old. Mm -hmm. He had plenty of time. Mm -hmm. right. But do you not think, actually, he would have been the nominee of the Democratic Party at the time? No, I don't think so. Why not? No, Humphrey had too many delegates. Mm. But still, there was this sentiment that it should be a change, like more or less with Barack Obama, it was the same sentiments in America at the time. With Bobby Kennedy, it could be a change. Something could happen then with the Vietnam War and everything. You, yeah. don't, you don't really believe that? No, I think, let's see, 68, add four, it's 72. He's 46 years old, 76, he's... 50 years old, he had plenty of time. Yeah. So why was he killed then at the, at the hotel? Because Sirhan Sirhan had severe brain damage, drank a quart of vodka a day. He almost sounds Scandinavian. <laughs> he smoked seven packs of cigarettes a day. He had fallen off of racehorses repeatedly and was out of his fucking gourd. Is that enough? I made it a conspiracy. I have to say, it's not the most convincing conspiracy I've ever created. <laughs> but still, you know, Robert Kennedy is there, he's, he's killed. And right. now in the, in the in three months, two of the prominent American Democrats, are, or Americans are killed, right. Dr. King and Robert Kennedy. Right. And then, you know, we have the eruption of the convention in, in, uh, in Chicago, we have the convention in, in Miami, and everything changes and suddenly, Richard Nixon is elected. 
Richard Nixon was a moderate candidate, not much different in social view than the Democratic candidate, Hubert Humphrey, who was saddled with a legacy of Lyndon Johnson's failed social programs, paid for by the Vietnam War. He was destined to win. The country wanted a Republican. There was not a lot of difference between the two men. But what happened to America, you know, having two murders in such short time? You were 20 at the I time. I was 20, yeah. Yeah. So what was your reactions at the time? What, do you remember what you reacted? I remember exactly yeah. what I was doing. Yeah, what did you do? I was taking amphetamines. <laughs> I was masturbating. At both times? Yes, at the same time. I was obsessed with the November 1967 Playboy Playmate of the Month, whose name was Kaya Christian. Oh, yeah. And she and I were having a very deep conversation. Over there. About Beethoven. All right. But she wasn't really there. It's kind of Anne Sophia von She was sure as shit there in my head. Okay. That's yeah. enough, I think. Yeah. But, you know, politically, did you. It, Something happened to you? Did you react? What happened except that you were, you were taking amphetamine and, and you were having nothing, nothing, fun uh, with yourself? What, I, I, what walked happened? To the, I walked to the liquor store the following morning mm -hmm. to get some booze. Robert Kennedy shot. I said, that's too bad. Yeah. That's it. Easy come, easy go. Okay. Yeah. But then obviously you were, kind of, you were consumed about this period because this is, this is the book. So the period from 68 to 72, you, what I think is interesting, you stop short of the Nixon re-election and the Watergate. Watergate Why? is a yawn. Is Watergate it? has been done to death. Mm -hmm. Most of the men involved in Watergate are still alive and can sue my ass. There is a logical end point, a death. You know what it is. Yeah. Let's not reveal it to the folks in the audience. No. And it preceded the Watergate break-in mm -hmm. by two months. Mm -hmm. That was the logical place to conclude this book. Now I would like, without not telling the story, but I would like to introduce another person that you have in your book. And that is the FBI director, G. J. Edgar Hoover. Gay Edgar Hoover, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Is he a crook? Was he a crook? No, he was not a crook. He was also not a drag queen. For one thing, he was much too ugly to ever pass as a woman. Tell us about it. Much too discreet to ever dress up as a woman. Much too circumspect. And he was never Clyde Tolson, his deputy director's lover. He was a celibate, homosexual, an effeminate man. He was dark. He was swarthy. He was terrified that he had black blood. And he disingenuously contended that organized crime did not exist and hassled left-wingers, some who deserved it, some who didn't. And I have made him extraordinarily witty in this book because it's funny shit. How, <laughs> how come he was so powerful? How could he be so powerful? How come he grew up to this powerful position, FBI director? How was it possible with this kind of person he that you described? He had an extraordinary accumulation of dirt files on politicians, big and small, and they were afraid to kick him out. And as Lyndon Johnson memorably remarked, I'd rather have him inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. Mm. So, after him, 
Were all the FBI directors the same kind of guys, you know, that no, you should have? No, they were not. No. No, they were not. So after him, you know, it was better times when he died or what happened to him. I did not wish his death. Better times occurred in the federal government after he lost power. But you don't regret his death. I don't regret his death, and frankly, it coincided with the chronological design of my trilogy. I was actually thrilled about the emerald link you there's, have. Yeah, Tell us about the emeralds and J. Edgar Hoover. Emeralds form the backstory of Blood's a Rover. I'm not much for jewelry, but I think I'll get Erica Schickel, once she divorces her husband, <laughs> an emerald engagement ring. I think they're cool. I think they're cool because my dad took me to see a movie called Green Fire with Grace Kelly. And Grace Kelly was cool. <laughs> Little and it was all about emerald, emerald mines in South America. And it never looked like South America. It looked like somewhere in Griffith Park in LA. <laughs> but I've had a thing for emeralds for 55 years. But knowing that you were actually, what was it you were on some, what were you on, on uh, in 1968? You were on some drugs. What did you say? You, you I took amphetamines. Amphetamine, I yes. marijuana. So you didn't I had really psychedelic experiences. Yeah. 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 So yeah. one could say it kind of fits into your conspiracy theories. Everything fits into this epic pop history, mostly invented of America between 68 and 72. And what I rely on is a psychological dynamic that I expect most people in this room possess. We do not believe the official histories of our country. We would rather believe a secret history. And if you create a big popular fiction full of real life people and events and fictional people and the fictional people blend seamlessly with the real life people and events, then you have created the private infrastructure of the nightmare of public policy and people will believe any outlandish shit that you tell them. <laughs> but this is Ensign 72 and after reading it I, I, I felt that I really needed some hot milk to calm me down because I was so upset and of course the only thought in my head was was it over in 72 or did it just continue in some other way? Think what happened after that? Was it, was it that bad during these years and it's much better now? Or is it the same shit Nixon's now? resignation in 74. This book ends two months before the Watergate break-in. Mm -hmm. Created a newer, more open era of public accountability in America. That, whatever misadventures America has indulged, has lasted to this day. Is America really prepared to read this book? How do, how America has read this book in great quantity. Yeah. But I mean, what do they say? Do they say, well, that's, it's fine, but you know, we don't really like we that you are putting shit on America. Is, is that no, a reaction? Everybody, that everybody's fine with all that stuff, but you get a groovier, jazzier, snappier, more existentialist reaction in Europe. 
Europeans dig this book more than Americans. Is it because we disliked Bush, you think? No. No? No. It's because you love and hate America concurrently in roughly in equal amounts. Why do we do that? <laughs> Why? Because we're big, we're bad, we created hard-boiled fiction and jazz. And you guys had your run. And we, we've never produced an artist as great as Beethoven. This is what... But you did produce me. <laughs> that surprised me, you know, reading your books. And then you suddenly realized that you are listening to Beethoven. I listen, kind of I'm contradiction. obsessed with Beethoven. Why? Beethoven is the most unfathomable genius ever created by civilization. The most revolutionary musician. His music presages jazz, syncopation, the blues. It is advanced beyond the highest form of calculus and mathematics. And it is about yearning on an unparalleled level, and the motherfucker wrote the greatest of it, death, and the worst it got, the greater he got. So how can I falter? And, and have, how can we falter? And you have Anne-Sophie von Otter at your desk, and you have Beethoven above your de bed. Is that right? In 1989 and 1990, until my dog attacked the poster, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still have a dog? Another dog? I will be reunited with Barco in, the, in my next lifetime, as we all will be, and he will talk, and he'll give you the inside story and everything you want to know. There's also Dudley, who we'll see up there, and there is currently Margaret, who lives with my second ex-wife, Helen Canode, also a novelist, in Austin, Texas. Lovely. Yeah. So, <laughs> I just want to ask you one thing is, how do you work? You have all this tremendous research work done before you, you write your novels. Tell us, how, how do you start your work? Where American are you history has been kind to me. I didn't kill <laughs> Dr. King or Senator Kennedy or President Kennedy. Other people did. It's there for me to exploit. Exploit is not too strong a verb. I live to tell stories. Ideas come to me because I spend a great deal of time lying in the dark, brooding with the Beethoven look. <laughs> I can understand that your wives are kind of confused. You're not lying in bed, you know, with that... Face. My wives have been confused. Erica Schickel, the woman I will spend the rest of my life with, is in no way confused and does a better Beethoven imitation than me. <laughs> but the threadbare research that I do is just the start. My researchers compile fact sheets and chronologies, a stack of paper this thick, so that I will not write myself into error. Then I have a great deal of latitude to fictionalize. I know the month-by-month -month whereabouts of Gay Edgar Hoover, Howard Hughes, and Tricky Dick Nixon. I know something about emerald mining. 
I know something about the American left. I know the story of the fracases at the two political conventions in the summer of 68. Beyond that, I am free to take fictional characters and put them in this configuration. Were you ever involved in the, in the left in the 60s or in the 70s? No. No. But then you are sitting there. You have all the research material. Yes. And you're sitting by your computer or... How I write by write? hand. I by write hand. hand, yes. So where are you sitting? Where do you sit when you write? I am hunched over my desk. I write a 400-page outline. How many pages a day? Do you have some kind of... You decide that I'm 10 pages or 15 no. pages? Nothing. No. No. Whatever comes the out there. The outline is the schematic design for this 750-page novel in Swedish. It is this book detailed down to the dots on the I's and the crosses on the T's. And having a superstructure for a huge, densely packed novel, this detail allows me to live in the individual scenes extemporaneously, improvisationally, to make them as entertaining, edifying, and jazzy as possible. Because you're very funny as well. It, it I'm funny as shit, and this book is funny as shit. Because I have spent a year preparing. But at the same time, I was, uh, there's one book that really haunted me. It was the book that you wrote about the murder of your mother. Yes. And you were 10 at the time. And um, yes. then you decided to, to write about it, to do an investigation. So tell yes. us what, what happened. When, what, was it there in your head for many times? Did it just wait for you to, to write it? Or how come you decided to write this book? It must be very, very tough. In 1994, a young friend of mine, a reporter, told me he would see my mother's unsolved murder file as part of a newspaper piece he was doing on unsolved homicides in the San Gabriel Valley where you used to teach college. And you know what a shitty, fucked up part of L.A. <laughs> that place is. I lived there for four months with my mother before her death. I said to myself, holy shit, I have to see the file. I saw the file, it was shocking, it was revelatory. I decided to turn it into a memoir that would be my mother's biography, my autobiography. I would reinvestigate her death with a brilliant, retired sheriff's homicide investigator. We would try to find the man who killed my mother. We did this, we failed at it, I wrote the book. The Hilliker Curse, my book about women and me, is a companion volume. But the murder was never solved? No. Do you have any ideas who did it? No. Does that haunt you, that you was not able to do, do more when, when you started it all? No, because the book describes an arc of reconciliation with my mother. So my mother lives through this book and lives through the companion volume, The Hilliker Curse. What about your father? You were at your father's place at the time. They, your, your parents were divorced, and you were at yeah. your father's place when this terrible murder happened, right. rape murder. So, and then you stayed on with your father. My dad was a big, handsome, Scottish-American emigre dipshit with a 16-inch schlong. <laughs> I, not this, I know for a fact this is not a crazed boy's whacked-out reconstruction because all his friends talked about it. 
In fact, my nurse mother once did this to her friends, women friends, when she was a little bit bombed out. She went... <laughs> that was my dad. Mm -hmm. He liked women. He liked horses. He liked to read historical novels. He was a math whiz. He had girlfriends. Wasn't a bad guy. I went to live with him. He died when I was 17. Mm. And what happened to you after that? When I was in the army then. I faked a nervous breakdown. I got kicked out of the army. Came back to LA. Started drinking, using drugs. Read a shitload of crime novels. Always listened to classical music a great deal. Broke into houses and sniffed women's undergarments in the manner of my character, Don Crutchfield. Quit drinking and using drugs when I was 29 and started writing books. Are you surprised nowadays that you actually managed to turn your life around? Could you sometimes think, how did I do that? Consciousness, faith in God. Faith in God? Yes. Tell us, how? I have never not believed in the divinity of Jesus Christ and in Almighty God. I had a appropriate for Sweden Lutheran education. The spirit of Luther roils in me. It might be added for the Lutherans in the audience, and I imagine there are a few. I imagine there are a few who no longer believe. But Luther, after he nailed the 92 Theses to the wall at Wittenberg, married a nun and had five kids. Somehow I see sex playing a major part in the Protestant Reformation. Somehow this has shaped my world view. After these three books, the last one in the trilogy, yes. do you feel a kind of relief or is it empty? Not in There's the Hilliker curse. There's the fact that now, in order to pay taxes, alimony, rent, the lease on my swanky sports car. What kind of sports car is that? I have an M5 BMW. Oh. It's a fast right. motherfucker. <laughs> it's a V10 with a six-speed manual transmission. Where do you drive that? In LA, where else? Uh, I realize that, but isn't that jammed all the roads? It's too much traffic, it's hard to drive you past. You can't get out of third gear in the streets, <laughs> but you can hit the highways every once in a while. Yeah. Huh? Where do you live in Los Angeles? I live just south of Hollywood, on the street that becomes Vine Street at Melrose, near my old peeper turf. But it's a kind of, it's dangerous areas that you're close by. Isn't it? Unkempt, not dangerous. Well, you know, yeah. it's, it, it's not really safe. Is that a it, way of... It's safe, it's okay. I'm, yeah. I'm not afraid, yeah. No, no, yeah. I guess you're not. But tell me now, when, when you are all, you're around in the big Los Angeles area, are you always there, you know, kind of looking for what to write about or can't try to get inspiration or is just, does it really matter? I play Beethoven, Bruckner, Mahler, Schubert, Liszt, Chopin, Rachmaninoff, and Bartok in the M5 when I drive around. Mm -hmm. I brood. 
I frequently assume the Beethoven face. <laughs> Can you write while you listen to music? No. Why? No. I require silence. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you mean, what does your room look like where, where you're writing? Is, you have I have a very neat office. It has an elliptical machine in one corner. It has framed book jackets and award scrolls of mine all over the place. I have two pictures of Erica Schickel on my desk. I have four busts of Beethoven on my shelves. Where did you buy them? My second ex-wife got one at an antique store. The others I bought at the Patelson Music Store mm -hmm. in New York City, oh, yeah. near Carnegie Hall. <laughs> I have some fake animal heads. What kind of animal? Tiger heads. Why? They're synthetic. Why? Because I love tigers. Do you want to hunt as well? No, I don't want to hunt. I love tigers. I kiss them all the time. <laughs> they wear baseball caps. <laughs> do, you yeah. do you like to go to zoo as well and watch the look them uh, when they're alive? No. Tigers, no. 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 You just no. want them dead. I do not want them dead. In I your want room, them I mean. preserved. Yeah. They are synthetic acrylic tiger heads that were made in a factory somewhere in fucking Taiwan. <laughs> I would never hunt a tiger. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. Good. Right. But now when you when you meet politicians, say Obama for example, what would you like to say to him? If if you maybe you met him already. No, I haven't met Obama. Did you vote for him? I voted for Obama tenuously. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I don't think he's a big deal. What do you mean by that? Everyone seemed obsessed by him. I'm not obsessed with no, him. But in Europe, no. so why? He's, he's extremely inexperienced. He has some rather jejune ideas about the complexity of the world. And he hasn't learned what all the great American presidents learn ultimately at some cost. America has to rule the world or someone worse than us will. <laughs> it's a capitalist economy, and it has to stay that way, and we'd better juke the capitalist economy. And giant social programs, by and large, do not work and are paid for by ghastly foreign wars. Now, Barack, go govern the country. Will he be reelected? I don't know. No. Would you, see, would you like to see him re-elected? Do you have a favorite? I don't know. I don't Do you have know. a favorite political type of person? Someone that you would enjoy having as the president? I think on any short list of great Americans of the 20th century, I would put Martin Luther King at the top. Mm -hmm. Quintessentially below him, three Roosevelts. Eleanor, mm -hmm. Franklin's wife and the real brains behind his presidency, and the real soul behind his presidency, Theodore Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. Yes. That, that might surprise the Swedish audience. History has become very, very kind to that deep, true, simple, gifted man. What I tell people of the left, you cannot read Edmund Morris's book, Dutch, a memoir of Ronald Reagan, and not dig this man 
on many levels. What I tell people on the right is you cannot read the Joseph P. Lash and James McGregor Burns biographies of Franklin Roosevelt and not dig this man on many levels. There are just these big American motherfuckers. <laughs> and, and it will take some time to see if the new guy is one of them. And you are a Californian, so you saw Reagan actually as a governor as well. Yes. Did that, did that in some way or another mean that you were more positive towards him than those who just saw him when he came into office in the White House on the national level? Um, as an American steeped in 20th century history, I just offer two facts that most people don't know. And it shocks me that people don't know these things. Franklin Roosevelt the alleged great liberal, was a preserver of capitalism, as Ronald Reagan certainly was, and is credited as being. Roosevelt was willing to let women and blacks be excluded from all the New Deal programs to curry favor with Southern Democrats until Eleanor said, Franklin, you cannot do that. <laughs> That's Franklin. Ronald Reagan signed the most permissive abortion rights law in American history into effect in June of 1967 as governor of California. Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt was grossly misunderstood during his presidency. Ronald Reagan, during his governorship, he opened the door for Roe versus Wade more than anyone else. If you read American history as a European, You'll start doing that. You may even make the Beethoven face. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing in American history is quite what didactic leftists and rightists think it is. What is the message? Someone said that these three novels is the American novel. So what is the message? Is there a message? Is there some, some conclusion that you would like us to remember? You know, if I should conclude in a few words. That's, of course, more or less impossible. So you have to do it yourself. How would you conclude your three books? Is it possible? Yeah. How? Except for the Dig Beethoven Dig it, cats. Fact. Dig it, cats. <laughs> America, 1958 to 1972. Holy shit. What a fucking ride. Mm. What do people say, you know, those actually... <laughs> Politicians that you eventually meet, what do they say? Do they agree or do they think that you are have a disfavored? You're doing, a, you are writing about them in a way that they don't like, of course. But could they see any sign of um, that you are actually putting your finger on something that is important? I've met two politicians in my lifetime. Who are they? Antonio Viragosa the mayor of Los yeah. Angeles, who's a dipshit. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the biggest bullshit artists I've ever seen. I was, I'm the MC of the LAPD's Jack Webb Awards every year. And you all know, right, you've all been confronted at one time or another, each and every one of you people in this audience with one of the world's biggest most nakedly transparent bullshit artists. 
And that's how I felt when I saw this guy at the podium. Antonio Villaraigosa, mayor of Los Angeles. Bullshit artist supreme. Okay. That's one. Steve Cooley, the district attorney of Los Angeles, is a friend of mine, a very good guy. That's it, the only two politicians I've ever met. Don't they want to meet you? No. No, you're Why? never invited. You don't have the time. I've never been invited to the White House. Yeah. That's a pity. Yeah, I can take the tour, I guess. You spend could. 20 bucks. Well, but no, they're, no. Not gonna, they're not going to let me sit behind the desk in the Oval Office, and I'm not going to say to Barack Obama, hey, Barack, listen, brother, <laughs> I want to make some calls and launch some nukes. <laughs> and if they're not going to let me do that, why the fuck go to the White House? What would you do if you... You had an hour there, you know, Barack said to you, well, do whatever you like. You can do whatever you like here. You have first, one first hour. First of all, I'd say, I'd say, listen, boss, let me ask you something. I've wanted to ask you something for a while, right? He'd say, okay, Mr. Elroy, you, you, may, you may ask me anything. And I would say, Mr. President, is being president of the United States the biggest fucking blast on earth? <laughs> and I'd be very, very curious, because frankly, he's a bit of a stiff, what he would say. Mm -hmm. What do you think he would say? Do you think he would... I think... I think he'd be afraid to smile because I said fuck and Mr. President in the same sentence. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he'd be confused. He'd wonder what it means. <laughs> you want to know the most impressive thing about him? Mm -hmm. He understands something. He understands that his job is to express the virtue he wishes to assume, and it's why he won the election. Mm -hmm. I knew very, very early on he'd be elected. A couple of reasons. John McCain is and looks like a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> Hillary Clinton is a short, dumpy woman, half the size of most Swedish women, one-third the size. She's my size, actually. It's no. Yeah, okay. No. Thank you. No. Thank you. Yeah. One third the size of Anne Sophie von Otter. <laughs> she didn't even lose weight for the presidency, and she wore pink pantsuits routinely. And Obama had a very good Kennedy impersonation going. What about Sarah Palin then? What can you say about Sarah Palin? Yeah. There's nothing you can say about her. She's taller. She's, she's taller, taller. Yeah, 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 she's taller. That's it. Yeah, she's the, the what? Was the governor of Alaska, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Does she fuck polar bears? I mean, what's, <laughs> what's the story on her? I don't know. Well. You got a psychopath running for president, John McCain, and a woman who fucks polar bears. And she could see Russia from her window, kitchen yeah. window. Yeah. Don't, aren't we interested in hearing what the audience are going to ask you? I think so. Does anyone want to ask me to close the show down why do you write? Yes. Why do you write? Why? More from the audience. We wanted you Why to... do you write? Come on, come on. <laughs> in my art or sullen craft, exercised in the still night, when only the moon rages and the lovers lie abed with all their griefs in their arms, I labor by singing light, not for the strut and trade of charms upon the ivory stages, but for the common wages of their most secret heart. Not for the proud man apart do I write on these spindrift pages, 
but for the lovers, their arms around the griefs of the ages who pay no praise or wages, nor heed my art or craft. Dylan Thomas. Great, and we thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much, thank you.